First Peter chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 4 to 10. Let's read and hear together God's living Word. As you come to Him, Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. Please do have that that passage open. It's really verses 9 and 10 of 1 Peter 2 that we'll be considering this morning. Uh, although we'll also be ranging a bit uh, wider on this, uh, on a really kind of thematic studies uh, through, through the creed. It is one thing to see and quite another thing to perceive. It's one thing to take in the mass of information now available to us about the events that unfold in our world, uh, but it's something else entirely to be able to discern in the midst of a particular historical and social setting what will ultimately prove significant in all of the events that unfold around us. Sometimes uh, the doors of history swing on very unlikely hinges. On the 28th of June, 1914, a man by the name of Leopold Loika was driving and he took a wrong turn. How could someone taking a wrong turn possibly be significant? Well, Leopold Leuka was a chauffeur driving a member of the Austro-Hungarian royal family. And when he stopped to turn the car around, a man at a cafe on that street at the point where he stopped recognized the man in the back seat of the car as Archduke Franz Ferdinand. He saw his opportunity, he assassinated him, and that set in train a course of events which led to the outbreak of the First World War and the deaths of an estimated 20 million people because someone took a wrong turn. Four years later, as the war neared its end, one day a British soldier in a French village had a German soldier in his sights and at his mercy. He was about to pull the trigger when he saw that the German soldier was injured and was not trying to shoot anyone. The German soldier looked up, saw him, And he lowered his gun, and the soldier acknowledged the gesture and slipped away. 
In the grand scheme of the First World War, it was nothing significant except that the name of the German soldier was Adolf Hitler. World War II saw an estimated 80 million deaths. After the war, to take a, a different kind of example, after the war in 1947, a young man tried out for the Washington Senators baseball team. Uh, he didn't make the grade, and so Fidel Castro decided to go into politics instead. The world is, is just full of these strange stories, little things where no one at the time could possibly have seen the significance of something that happened. I'm sure we could multiply these examples endlessly. For Christians, well, we follow a God who sovereignly overrules all things. He knows the end from the beginning, and he needs to give permission before a sparrow can fall to the ground. There's a huge amount that he doesn't tell us about what he's doing in the world and when and how, but some things he has revealed. And in fact, I want to suggest this morning, he has revealed one particular truth which the unbeliever wouldn't just reject, but would absolutely ridicule. I, I want to quote you something. I know I've quoted it before, uh, but I find myself drawn back time and time again to the way that Eric Alexander once expressed this years ago now at a conference. I love how he put this truth. It's so counterintuitive, but it's absolutely crystal clear with biblical clarity. This is what he said. The most significant thing happening in history is the calling, redeeming, and perfecting of the people of God. God is building the church of Jesus Christ. The rest of history is simply a stage God erects for that purpose. He is calling out a people. He is perfecting them. He is changing them. History's great climax comes when God brings down the curtain on this bankrupt world, and the Lord Jesus Christ arrives in His infinite glory. The rest of history is simply the scaffolding for the real work. And then He said this, there will come a day when God pulls down the scaffolding of world history, do you know what he will be pointing to when he says to the whole creation, here is my masterpiece? He will be pointing to the church of Jesus Christ. One day, the world will gasp in astonishment. Those, those people, those crazy religious people in those shrinking churches that we thought were a total irrelevance and clearly destined for obliteration, that's what it was all about all along. That's what will happen one day. Do you get what that means? That means that the aging granny who has been worshiping God all her days and who has loved the people of God and who has witnessed as she's been able in her circle of family and friends and who has prayed and who has loved the Lord this elderly saint, quietly living her life, known to no one but her family and her church, is a more significant figure in history than Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great or Napoleon or whoever else. Because she has done what none of them have done. She has taken her place gladly in the central story of what God is doing in the world. She is the one on the right side of history. 
The central story of what God is doing in the world is, is well, Jesus summarizes it in, in Matthew 16, 18. He gives a kind of five-word manifesto for the whole of history. I will build my church. That's, that's Christ's manifesto for the whole of history. I will build my church. The whole of global history is the story of Jesus preparing to do that and then doing it. That's why throughout the centuries, Christians have affirmed, in the words of the Creed, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. I want to begin just by, by thinking about that statement. What does that mean, believing in the church? What, what, what do we mean by that? Uh, we've said so far in the Creed that we believe in God the Father, we believe in God the Son, we believe in God the Holy Spirit, and that involves very specific convictions of faith and commitments of obedience. Clearly, we don't believe in the church in the same sense, do we? Um, the church didn't die for your sins. The church won't give you a new heart. The church can't give you eternal life. So, so we're using the words in a slightly different sense here. God didn't give His one and only Son so that whoever believes in the church might not perish but have everlasting life. It's a different kind of belief. Nonetheless, the, the importance of this statement is enormous. If the church has the place in God's purposes and the place in history that I'm suggesting, if this is the central thing that God is doing in the world, then it cannot be secondary or peripheral in our thinking and in our priorities. And if it is, if church is, is at some level in our minds almost kind of an, an optional extra for those that find it helpful, then something is badly wrong. The creed should remind us of, of that. It, it includes the place of the church as one of the core truths that all Christians should recognize. That's the point of the creed. All Christians should be able to affirm these truths. And although we, we don't know the exact process by which the creed first came to be formulated and used, there's a profound wisdom in the way that it's been framed. There's a clear and rational order. As we've moved, I wonder if you've noticed it as we've, as we've moved through it. We have the work of God the Father in creation. We have the work of God the Son in redemption. We have the work of God the Holy Spirit who applies the gospel to us. The creed will go on to conclude by speaking of our receiving of all the benefits of God's work for us in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. That's how it will finish. But in between the work of God and our experience of these gospel benefits, the creed puts the church because it is the work of God to create the church, to build His church, and it is in the church that Christians come to know all the benefits of the gospel. So, here's what I think it means to say that we believe in the church. It means that in our minds, we give to the church the importance that God gives it in His mind. It means that in our hearts, we treasure the church as God treasures it in His heart. And it means that in our lives, we give to the church the place that God asks us to give to the church in our lives. To believe in the church is to embrace the Bible's teaching about its place, both in the grand scheme of God's purposes and in the day-to-day -day practicalities of your life. So, with all of that by way of introduction, what I want to do for the rest of our time is I want to say three things about the Holy Catholic Church. Uh, the first is that it's holy, the second is that it's Catholic, and I wonder if you can guess the third. The third is that it's the church. 
Uh, we're going to start with the third because it's the most basic. What is this church that we believe in? The answer is that the church is a people called by God. A people called by God. Let me just pick out three things. Uh, there's lots in that, uh, just these two verses in 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10. Let me pick out three things from those verses. You are a chosen race, he says. A chosen race. Interesting expression. You are a race distinguished not by genetics or skin color or nationality, but by a gracious choice which God has made. You're a chosen race. Secondly, you are a royal priesthood. In the Old Testament, what's what's the point of the priest? The priest is the one who approaches God. Everyone else stands back because God has to be handled with, with immense care. You don't wander into the presence of God. The priest is the one who approaches God. Now, every believer has become a priest. Amazingly, through the self-sacrifice of Jesus, think of the curtain of the temple being torn in two. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, you and I have access to the presence of the living God. We are people called by Him, to come to Him. And then thirdly, moving on to verse 10, you are simply a people. You have a new shared identity. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. You're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So again, the distinguishing characteristic of this group is not the kind of special qualifications that they have. They don't. It's the mercy that God has shown towards them. Now, in all of this, what we're seeing is that the church is not a human institution. The church is not a human institution. It is a divine creation. It's the community of those who have been called by God to belong to Him, all of them. And that's important. The church does not consist of some people called by God or of those people who've been called by God who feel that it would be helpful for them to be in a church. The church consists of all people called by God, whoever they are, wherever they are. There's no distinction. Even here in Peter's letter, if you were to glance back to the start of the letter, uh, he addresses the letter to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, that is, scattered believers, that's what he's saying, So, he's addressing his letter to scattered believers in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, that's a vast territory. That's about five times the size of Scotland. And you, he says, are a people. You are one people. You are one church. You're a chosen race. You're one in Christ Jesus, and you are all part of the fulfillment of Christ's promise that He would build His church. And so, to be called by God, to be one with Jesus, to be forgiven and made new, to be born again, however we express what it is to be a Christian, that is to be part of the church. In fact, just let me make it crystal clear. It is not possible to be a Christian and not be part of the church. I've chosen my words very deliberately. I'm not exaggerating. I don't really mean that it's not advisable to be a Christian and not be part of the church. It is not possible to be a Christian and not be part of the church. Because by becoming a Christian, 
you become part of the church. You just, you just cannot separate these things. The only question is whether you're obeying or disobeying God's command to live that out in a particular local fellowship of God's people, because that is the only context the New Testament knows for any Christian believer. Now, you're all here, so in a sense, I'm, I'm preaching to the converted, aren't I? But I want to make sure that you know why you're here, and I want to make sure that you know why you should be here next week. It's because, look at verse 5, you are one stone in a spiritual house. And while I am neither an architect nor a builder, I do know that it's not a good idea to take bricks out of the walls in my house. If I need something to, to prop the door open on a windy day, I don't take a chisel and, and just, you know, hack a brick out of the wall. And, 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 and if I do that, what I do know is that then the brick is not serving the purpose that it was intended to serve and that it's undermining the integrity of the building, that it's not where it should be. You are one stone in a spiritual house. Or let's try a different image. You are one sheep in a flock. If you wander off on your own, you are liable to fall off a cliff or be eaten by wolves or fall over on your back and not be able to get back up again, and the flock will be diminished. Or try a different image. You are one citizen in a kingdom. If you decide to go out alone, you weaken the community, you desert your king, and you forfeit his protection. Or try a different image. You are one member of a family. Walk away, and you deprive both yourself and your family of love and support and care and a million other things. Or try a different image. You are one part of a body. If you don't take your place in that body, you are what George Philip at Sandiford Henderson used to call an amputated saint. It's a nice image. You're an amputated saint. Imagine, uh, with apologies for the kind of grotesque image, imagine you're walking along the street in Stenhouse Muir one day, and there on the pavement you come across a severed hand. Now, I don't know about you, just, even just saying that, I feel a little bit kind of queasy saying that, because it is a grotesque thing, isn't it? Everything in you recoils at that. that. That is not how it should be. And for us, the prospect of an individual isolated Christian should have the same impact on our hearts. This is not how it should be. The hand is to be connected to the body. And in reality, only connected to the body can the hand live. See, it doesn't matter what image you reach for. Every single New Testament picture of what it means to be a believer is a corporate picture. Every single way it's expressed is a way of emphasizing to us that we are part of something bigger and are called to take our place in it. You're part of a people. And let me, let me say this. Please don't believe anyone who tells you that all that really matters is that you belong to the invisible church. Uh, the invisible church is a, is, a, is a useful theological concept. It's a way of distinguishing between those who profess faith, the visible church, and those who truly believe known only to God the invisible church, all who truly are saved, 
Um, so, so there's a kind of theoretical distinction there, a theological distinction there. And for certain purposes, it's important. But let me emphasize the main thing about the invisible church. It's invisible. We can't see it. God sees it. We can't see it. So in all of our dealings with one another, all that we have is the visible church. It, it, is, it is simply not enough to say, well, I belong to the invisible church, and that's all that matters. When the New Testament says to you, love one another, encourage one another, uphold one another, build up one another, what, are you doing that with invisible people? We can only do that with real, live, actual people in a real, live, actual fellowship. We need to be together in these ways. The day-to-day -day life the Bible envisages for Christians is a shared life. It is a mutually interdependent life, an accountable life, a life of love and service. How, how has this happened? I mean, for, for many years, evangelicals have rightly insisted on the need for personal faith. That's partly been in reaction to nominal religion, whereby people assume, I, I'm okay with God because I'm in church Sunday by Sunday. That, that, that is a dangerous nonsense. It's absolutely true that being in church doesn't make you a Christian. But it's also true that being a Christian puts you in the church. And to suggest otherwise is also dangerous nonsense. So yes, we need to exercise personal faith. People come to Christ one at a time. You, singular, must believe in Him. You, singular, must repent of your sins and trust in Him. This is essential, but there is a world of difference between a personal faith and an individual faith. We are not called to that we are called into fellowship with all who know and love the Lord. And that fellowship is not even just a command, something that we should do. It's something that the Bible tells us has happened. If I'm united to Christ and you are united to Christ, then you and I are united to one another in Him. That's a reality. And again, the only question is whether we will be obedient or disobedient to the command of God to make that real here on the ground. This is how much the church matters. The way that someone has put it is that we are not saved individually and then choose to join the church as if it were some club or support group. Christ died for His people, and we are saved when by faith we become part of the people for whom Christ died. So, that's a nice way to think of it. So, what we believe in, in the sense of embracing the centrality and significance of it, is the church, a people called by God, hugely important, massive practical importance in our lives. The Creed also describes the church as holy, uh, which is to say that it's a people belonging to God. That's the point of that word. Verse 5 um, here in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for his own possession. And, and that last expression there, that goes to the heart of what holiness is, a people for God's possession, his people. That's the point of the word. The holy land is God's land. The holy Bible is God's Bible. The Holy Spirit is God's Spirit. The holy church is God's church. It belongs to Him. Now, you and I know that at times in practice, the church has been far from holy. In fact, you and I know that at times in practice, the church has been an unholy mess. That is a tragedy precisely because it's a denial of everything that God calls us to be. The pattern of holiness in the church and in the Christian life is it's consistent throughout the whole of the New Testament. God does two things. First, He chooses a people and sets them apart to belong to Him in a particular way. And that action of God before we ever do anything, that action of God in setting apart a people makes them holy. That's what it means for them to be holy. God has set them apart to belong to Him, and He then calls and equips them to be holy in practice, to be in reality on a Tuesday afternoon what He says we are, he calls us to reflect on a Thursday morning in our workplace that we belong to God. And, and on a Tuesday tea time with our families that we belong to God. He calls us to reflect that in the practicalities of, of our living. The holiness of Israel worked in that, that twofold way. God chose this nation of all the nations, and so by choosing them, He made them holy. He then called them to be holy in their living, which sometimes they did, and very often they didn't. But even when their behavior was unholy, they remained holy in the sense that they were a people belonging to God. The church is the same. We've been set apart by God to belong to Him, and we are in that sense separate from the world, different from the world, and we're intended to be. In fact, the greatest catastrophe that can befall the church is that we should fit in neatly with our culture and that there should be no difference between the world and the church. I remember reading something by an MP a while ago talking about some debate in the Church of England, and, and he pronounced it was, it was just absolutely ridiculous. The Church of England was in danger of becoming out of step with the values of the British people, and I thought, if only, if only, because that's who we should be. We're called to be different because we're holy. Our whole, how can we be the same? Our whole understanding of reality is different. Our whole understanding of history is different. Our whole understanding of eternity is different. How can we be the same as everyone else? To say that you believe in the church is to say that you believe in a body of people who are distinct from the world, who breathe the air of heaven rather than earth who look to what is unseen more than what is seen, and who are infinitely more concerned with what is eternal than what is passing away. So we have this group of people within a wider culture and world who are distinct and separate, and that is going to do two things. That is going to, when, when the church 
is like this. When the church is holy, that will do two things. It will attract and it will repel. The church will be, in that sense, attractive and repulsive. The church will attract and repel according to its measure of holiness. And the more holy the church is in practice as well as in principle, the more it will attract and the more it will repel, depending on how people uh, respond. Some will be repelled by the presence of a holy church. They will despise it and reject it. Here in 1 Peter 2, uh, he describes Jesus at verse 4 as rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And if you know anything of 1 Peter, you'll know that the rest of this letter, uh, the whole of this letter makes clear that as the master was, so will his followers be. That's just a, a reflection of the teaching of Jesus himself. That's what Peter heard directly from the lips of Jesus. And, and it's simply part of what it is to be the church of Jesus Christ. At times, with the best will in the world, please make no mistake about this, when, when criticism comes to the church, it's very easy in our kind of snowflake age to immediately say, what did we do wrong? You know, we must have got something wrong if someone's criticizing us. At times, with the best will in the world, with the most gracious wording, speaking nothing but truth in love, people will hate the church. They will hate the church. That will happen. In our country, we fairly recently exited a strange period of history when being a Christian was considered normal and respectable. But that's not, that's not actually the norm at all, historically. It's not how it usually is. And usually there is a price to pay, and we need to be clear about that, and we need to be level-headed. And we need to remember who Christ is, and we need to remember what's at stake, and we need to be willing to pay it. I was just reading the other day about a, a man, um, I don't know how you pronounce it, Dumitru Staniloi, something like that. Um, Romanian man, um, a Christian who was imprisoned. This is a, a half a century or more back now. Was imprisoned in Romania for his faith. He spent most of uh, five years he was imprisoned, and he spent most of that time in a concentration camp. And in later life, whenever he was asked about his experiences, this is what he said To carry one's cross in this way is the normal condition of the Christian. And so there is no need to talk about it. That's it. There's a man who understands that a holy church will sometimes be rejected. Carry one's cross in this way is the normal condition of the Christian. It's no big deal. There's no reason to talk about it more. We follow Jesus. Do you remember? So holiness in God's people will repel some but here's what we need to remember. It will attract others. And, and, and I think only time will tell. Okay? This is not in the Bible. But I think that over time, in, in our age, this is going to become more and more stark. I think the, the, the repulsiveness that some people feel towards the church will, will become more stark. But I also think that the attractiveness will become more stark at times. I was reading just yesterday uh, an article by Tim Keller. He was building on some work of a professor of mine at New College, actually, by the name of Larry Hurtado, died uh, just a few months ago. Hurtado's work is all in the, the origins of Christian worship, the very early period of the church, 
how people began to worship Jesus, how the church um, uh, grew in that time. Christians at that time were considered offensive and narrow-minded and even a threat to the social order. They were persecuted intensely at times, and yet they multiplied in number at a breathtaking rate. Uh, Larry Hurtado actually uh, has a book with uh, the not very snappy title, but it's nonetheless a good question, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? Christians were, were kind of despised, and yet people became Christians in their thousands and thousands. How did this happen? Now, you know, of course the answer is through the sovereign grace of God. God, Jesus built His church as He had said He would, but God uses means And the crucial factor that Larry Hurtado identifies is that the church became a kind of contrast community or a counterculture. They formed a distinctive new group, and he picks out five characteristics of the church in those early days that made a huge impact on their society. Number one, the early church was multiracial and experienced a unity across ethnic boundaries that was unknown in the ancient world and startling. Number two, The early church was a community of forgiveness and reconciliation. They staunchly refused to retaliate against those who persecuted them. Number three, the early church was infamous for its hospitality to the poor and suffering. In times of plague, when everybody else fled the city, the Christians stayed and tended to the sick. And when they died, secular historians wrote, They carry their dead as if in triumph. Number four, the early church was a community committed to the sanctity of life. This was a world in which if you had a child that you didn't want, you generally didn't have an abortion because abortion was too dangerous. You you had the child, and then you took it to a garbage heap, and you laid it on the garbage heap, and you left it there to die. The Christian church came and found these children and took them and raised them as their own. Number five, the early church was a sexual counterculture, embracing a sexual ethic radically different from anything that was known at the time. Now, all of that is, that's Hurtado's analysis of, uh, of what happened. And then Tim Keller finishes the article with this. It was because the early church didn't fit in with its surrounding culture, but rather challenged it in love that Christianity eventually had such an effect on it. And then he says, could essentially the same project have a similar effect if it were carried out today? That's a good question, isn't it? If Christians embraced holiness in the way God asks us to, what impact would it have? Because, of course, the only way the church can be holy is if you and I are holy. Finally, the creed says that the church is Catholic, which means that it is a people united in God. Uh, The Greek word katholikos means uh, whole or complete or universal or general. Um, Of course, the point of having a church called the Roman Catholic Church is that it claims to be the whole church, the only true church. Uh, Only if you belong to the structures of of this denomination with its um, kind of hierarchical structure leading up to Rome, uh, only if you belong to that church 
Are you a part of the church at all? That's what the Roman Catholic Church believes. Now, there are far more problems with that than we have time to get into this morning. We're not going to be sidetracked by that. But the point of Catholicity is not hierarchical structures and institutional unity and uniformity. The point is to recognize, ironically, that the church belongs not to us, not to our denominations, but to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is His church. I will build my church, He says. And if I can put it this way without being flippant, Jesus is monogamous. Jesus is monogamous. He has one bride. He does not have many brides scattered all over the world. He has one bride. And all believers belong in the end to the one church of Jesus Christ that He is building throughout time and space. All of His people, in all their astonishing diversity, form one church. And so to say that the church is Catholic is to recognize there are no man-made boundaries to it. The church of Jesus Christ knows no national boundaries. It knows no distinctions or divisions of race or of class. God sets the boundaries of His church, and He tells us very clearly what those boundaries are. Those who believe in Christ and are united to Him by faith are in His church. Those who do not are not. Simple as that. Now, let me say, um, I don't think that means that denominations are, are a bad thing, or, or even that they don't matter. In a perfect world, I guess we'd only have one denomination, but we're not in a perfect world, are we? Not yet. And so for now, in a sinful world, denominations allow Christians to, who disagree on secondary issues to hold to their distinctive convictions and practices while affirming their unity in Christ. And it's very important that, that Christian denominations are not just isolated from one another. If we believe in the Catholic Church, then we need to be working together with all who who believe the gospel. Now, that unity is only possible to the extent that the truths of God's Word are held in common. This is God's church, remember, and that means that His Word holds sway. So, where there are groups that call themselves churches but reject God's Word, that's a problem. That creates division. Groups which reject Christ's Word and Christ's gospel have no rightful claim to be part of Christ's church. But where there is a common belief in the gospel and in Christ, we have no, it's not, it's not only wrong, we have no right to put up a division. We need to work with others. There are our own denomination um, the International Presbyterian Church has many flaws. Um, it's very unimpressive by worldly standards, but there are things about it that I love. Uh, I love that it's committed to the Word as it is, and so clear about the foundation, that foundation of biblical unity, Christian unity. Uh, I love that we gladly and enthusiastically affirm our gospel unity with all who build on that same foundation. We, we don't want to be parochial, and we don't want to be sectarian. We want to be open. I love that even within the UK, our churches, I was just looking at a website the other day, you know, we're, we're in Larbert, you know, now, we're, we're, we're a diverse group in various ways, various very good ways. Um, I was looking at the, the website for the, uh, for the church in Ealing in West London, and it happens to mention on the front page of their website that, they, that they're a church of 35 different nationalities. It's a wonderful thing, absolutely wonderful thing. 
And actually, I love the internationalism of our denomination. That's distinctive, and it's unusual. And although the, uh, the unity of the church doesn't depend on having one denomination for the whole world, um, it, it does say something, I think, about the Catholic nature of the church. There's one church. We're all together. As you know, the IPC was founded by Francis Schaeffer. This is what Schaeffer said. The real chasm must be between true Bible-believing Christians and others, not at any lesser point. The chasm is not between Lutherans and everybody else, or Baptists and everybody else, or Presbyterians and everybody else. The real chasm is between those who have bowed to the living God and His Son, Jesus Christ, and thus also to God's Word, the Scripture, and those who have not. That's it. That, that's where the dividing line comes. Otherwise, we stand with Christians. We gladly, joyfully stand with Christians throughout the globe. One gospel, one Lord, one faith. And we joyfully anticipate the day when that will become a visible reality in the new heavens and the new earth. It is, it is part of the glory of the gospel that it transcends all racial, ethnic, and social differences globally without exception. There's very little else that does this in the world. The church may look very different in, very pla in, in different places uh, and at different points in history, but that's neither here nor there. We are one church, and the day is coming when we will gather as one great multitude beyond anything we can presently imagine, men and women from every tribe and language and people and nation. I mean, the world talks about diversity. This is diversity like you've never dreamed. We will gather, and all will join in the praise of the one at the center of it all, the Savior of His people, the Lord of His church, the one who has bought and brought this people. That's where it's all heading. That's where everything is heading. Not just church life, but the whole of history. The scaffolding will come down, and all will see. That's why we must believe in the church. This is what God is doing in the world. This is the story of history. Jesus gathering His holy Catholic church. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that our world is one that is just filled to overflowing with conflict and division. People carved up into every possible interest group, every possible category. And, and it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing to us that against that background, we turn and, and you paint for us this vision of a church which consists of, of anyone, everyone, all who will come, all who will receive your mercy and your grace, regardless of circumstances, regardless of nationality or, or, or race or background or social status or class or any of, any of the other things that divide our world, all of it laid aside, none of that relevant, but all one in Christ Jesus. It's a wonderful thing to reflect on this, on this unifying impact of the gospel. And it's a wonderful thing to consider that picture that you have also painted for us of the day to come when, when that will be seen in all its glory and all the, the sheer magnificence 
of one global people united in Christ, praising His name, rejoicing in Him. Father, how we long for that day and how we long to anticipate that day here and now as we look to Christ, as we praise His name, and as we love one another across everything that might divide us in terms of natural human inclinations and interests. How we thank You that You have brought us together and made us one. Father, give us grace that we might give expression to that unity that You have given to us, and that we might take our part in this fellowship of Your people, all those commands of Your Word, all those encouragements and commands of the New Testament. Love one another, encourage one another, build up one another, forgive one another. Father, may all of these things be real and concrete in our fellowship, we pray. And in turn, may this fellowship be part of something much greater and larger. May we always see ourselves as part of Your church in our nation, on our continent, and throughout the world, that all might join in the praise of Christ. And for this, we pray in His name. Amen.